Roman, it's Wednesday. That can only mean one thing. It's interview time. I'm going to talk with the one, the only, Brian Smith. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back, Roadman, to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. It is Wednesday, that means it is time for the full form Roadman interview. And this week, like, how blessed have we been on this Roadman Podcast? Since the start of lockdown, we've just been nailing top guest after top guest. And again, today is no exception. He's ex-British champion. He's Eurosport pundit. He's former director sportif for some of the biggest names in cycling. And we're lucky to have him as a guest today. I find Brian Smith is just so unique because he's someone who has a three-dimensional outlook on cycling because he's experienced it as a rider. He's experienced it as a director sportif and now experienced it as a pundit. So from that, he gives a very textured look and a sorry multifactorial analysis of cycling which i find fascinating i loved my chat with him my chat with him is actually part of a wider summit that you've heard me talking about brian smith is one of the summit speakers and this interview is an extract from that very summit so if you want to tune in and you want to listen to brian and 29 other top performers that's the idea of the summit it was to use the leverage from this podcast to take that idea of performance and how we optimize performance and tackle it from 30 different angles we have chefs from like Mitchelton scott we've world tour mechanics we've director sportifs we've riders sports psychologists nutritionists the list goes on this is the first summit of its kind in cycling and i'm really pleased to be able to bring it to you guys it's the roadman summit it's a free ticket it's, more, it's like my christmas present to you there's not even a charge for it i just wanted to spread a bit of joy over you know coming into the holiday season and covid has just been such a fucking depressing time for all of us that i think it was much needed so you can register for your free ticket at roadmansummit.com please if you're in a cycling club share it in with the cycling club stick it in the whatsapp group help spread the good word because i think everyone from world tour all the way down to weekend warrior is going to benefit hugely from this summit and the way you can pay it back and pay it forward like i mentioned every single podcast but it matters guys it matters it's patreon it's patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore walsh that's where you can pitch me a little thank you beer coming into the christmas for the summit for the podcast if you're getting some value out of either of them please think about making a contribution there and give a little bit of that law of reciprocity okay road man the moment you have been waiting for it is the one the only brian smith thanks for having me i'm delighted to chat with you brian i feel like is it weird when i've spent so much time watching you on the tv and you've never seen me before it's this weird dynamic we have going now um i don't do a lot of envision stuff i've started to do more envision stuff in the last kind of three years it's it's more my my voice so people don't really see me um you know when my kids were growing up they were my partner was putting the tv on and they, they were watching tv they could hear the voice but they couldn't see me and sometimes um even in mallorca the, i met a, a group about three years ago and i just asked them just politely is it okay if i tag along with you and he turned around and I went, I recognise your voice. I recognise my voice. And he said, oh, sure, and got to know them. And, yeah, it's, it's strange that people people now, because I've done a little bit more envision, people see me and say hello to me. But three, four years ago, it was just all about my voice. So I, I don't think I've got a distinctive voice, but people think I have. When I was thinking about... Uh people for the summit and we're trying to tackle this idea of performance and how to maximize your performance from as many different angles as possible i thought there can't be as many there can't be i don't know if there's another person in the world as well placed as you to look at this from different perspectives because you've been a writer of some note with national titles you've been a director of some note and now you're one of the the leading pundits in the sport that sort of trifecta is very unique i think yeah, it, it, it brings a lot to commentary as well, uh, because 
too many times that a lot of teams, you work with one team, you concentrate on one team. And with commentary, because I've been there, um, you know, I took the first African team to the Tour de France with some some good success. So you, you concentrate on what you're doing, but you don't see what others are doing. And, and with commentary, you have to look at all the teams, what all the teams are, are, are doing. And, and like you say, I've been a sports director at the highest level. I've, I've been a, a rider. I wouldn't say the highest level, but, you know, a good, good, very good level. Um, and also working in the, in the media with across most of the major events. But I've also worked in a lot of events as well and been at a lot of events. You know, I've been on site at the Giro, the Welter, the Tour, the World Championships. I've worked in the Tour of Britain. So that gives me another element because I'm, as a, as a, a pundit, I'm looking at the motorbikes, the setup and things like that, and understand from the rider's point of view that the, the, the motorbikes are getting too close and helping the riders. There's a lot of performances have been helped by the motorbikes at the front of the race, but working on the media side and working on the, uh, the event side, I can see, you know, both sides. So that gives me a, a kind of unique element, as you say, to, you know, what I think about cycling. I think you were quite modest when you were describing yourself as a rider of not much note because you've two national titles, was it 91 and 94? So if we join yeah. us back to that, talk to me through yeah. then, like how it's changed from then to now. Like, were you coached back for those British national titles? I'm self-coached. It's it's something that um, I've learned. I think when I retired from the sport, I, I coached someone from Scottish club level up to winning in Britain. You know, the, uh, there's a series, a national series called the um, Premier, I think the Premier events. So I coached them from hardly finishing uh, a Scottish race to winning uh, at British level. So I did a bit of coaching, but um, I'm not too sure if, if coaching was, was for me. I like helping individuals, but it's like having kids. I know that now I've got two young kids and being a coach, yeah, it's not about I can coach you. Let me get to know you first. Once I get to know you, and I think that's what um, a lot of coaches maybe don't understand, that it's about the relationship. Because I can go into a team like Cervelo Test Team or, or NetApp Endure or, or MTN Quebec, but of the, the riders that are in that team, I don't think I could coach every one of them. Um, there's maybe six or eight, maybe more, ten I could coach. But it's that that personal relationship. If you don't have the relationship, it's like father and son. My father was a cyclist and I used to listen to him. But I wouldn't take everything in. But yet um, a stranger or someone I didn't know really well give me the same information and I'll take it in. So it's all about that relationship, the trust, the relationship. Because I don't think someone that's got um, even... Rider agents, I've got a stable of maybe 20 or 30 riders. But they just put them in teams to make money. They don't put them in the right teams. And it's the same with coaching. You can coach 20 or 30 riders, but do you really know that rider? Because it's not just about giving giving the, the training. You've got to know how it fits into to their their life and what their life is about. It's something I learned from it did. Uh, a coach, the coach show for um, a program here in the UK where myself and Rob Hales, uh, we selected kind of two individuals and coached them towards an event. Mm. Uh, it was a sportive and, you know, I got to know the individual, I got to know the circumstances. And it's one thing he said to me, do you want me to invest into a power meter? And that rang a bell, invest. And I went to meet him. It was a two up, two down house, just a just a nice simple house. He had two young kids looking around. I'm thinking, I don't want him to spend a thousand pounds in a power meter. Yeah, it's going to help me look at it, help him train, but I couldn't do that to him. And you have to look at specific things that are going to to help not just the individual, but help the family. And when he said invest, if someone says, Do you want me to invest? that's a bit of money for them. And so, you know, they cannot, alarm bells go off, they cannot afford them. So we went back to kind of old school ways where you asked me the question, I was self-taught. I used to pick up the phone when I was younger and phone Robert Miller and ask. Robert Miller would give me... He's a nice guy to have in your corner. 
Yeah, he gave me the 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 training that he was doing with Panasonic. You know, some of the power training they were doing in the winter, and it was a lot of the, the kind of weight training, the power training was was done over either an hour or an hour and fifteen minutes, but it was done on the bike. So I was doing a lot of this stuff and so was that just big gear stuff on the bike. Yeah, well, you did an hour on the flat and the biggest gear on your bike. So it was just like some power stuff. It was like kind of load training. So what was the biggest uh, gear then? Were you still 53, 11? No, I don't think it was 11. I think it was 53, 12 at that time. And then an hour and 15 minutes on maybe some hillier trip terrain, but you use the gears a little bit more, but your cadence was always about, you know, 50, 60 maximum. And it was just about power stuff. So that's what they were training. I think most of the uh, the flat stuff was more down towards kind of time trialing efforts because Robert told me that that helped his time trial efforts, that bit at the end. And also towards the end of, once you'd done your four hours, your five hours, just for 10 minutes, you'd put it in the maximum gear and just ride that power stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that I, I learned. There was no scientific way. They were, they were kind of passed down. Um, but the biggest thing in training that I got is if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Yeah, and I think if, that's something I'm getting. Like when we look at this multifactorial approach to performance across the summit, I spoke with uh, Scott Murphy. He's the head physio for Mitchell and Scott. And he was talking about, you've all these studies now that talks about biomarkers of recovery. Should you use ice baths, space boots, all this different stuff? He's like, but he thinks you can basically throw all them studies out the window because you need to figure out, does it make the rider feel better? And that's not yeah. captured in any of these studies because he said, if it makes you feel better, like if I ask you, why you, how did you feel the day you won the British National Championships? You'll probably come back with something like, I had good legs. And that's common. We hear that a lot from riders. I had good legs, I had bad legs. That's it's all subjective. No, I I think a lot of that is a forgive my French is sometimes a bit of bollocks uh, when someone says they were floating. In my book, whether I won or lost, cycling is not easy. My first British title I got um, I was a bit lucky in, in getting it because other people were marked out of it, but I gave everything and I was I was on the limit at the end. My second British title in between them, I finished second twice. But my, the, the next title, I was like, this is hard. It was like a couple of weeks after the Giro d'Italia. So that was so 1994? Yeah. So you so wouldn't waste Motorola that year, was it? Yeah. So all my wins that I had in my career, um, and even before I was a professional, there was there was not one I thought I was on a float there. That was easy. They were all hard. And, and that's what I say to a lot of riders. You will not win because you've got oh, great legs or, or you're floating or anything like that, you just have to suffer more than anybody else. Yeah, That's what you have to do. And, and my philosophy is if you can suffer more than others, you'll win more. It's not about, yeah, you can have good legs and feel good. And how many people do, and even now in the interviews we get after the, the Welt or the Giro or the Tour, I had good legs, but you didn't win. So there's a lot of people felt they had good legs, they felt good, but they didn't win. And I think... A lot of that is, a, like I said before, a bit of bollocks because no one, nobody that races and finishes that race, finishes that stage, gets it easy. Well, I it's think that's hard. the part that a lot of guys coming into the sport, you know, the entry-level categories in Ireland, we call it Category 4. I'm not sure if they have four cats in the UK. But they're coming into the sport, they're so conditioned to indoor riding through Zwift, training rides where they're making excuses saying, oh, I better ease off in a group ride and let themselves get dropped because they're looking at a power meter. At some point, you just need to draw a line and say, this is a fucking hard sport. You need to roll up your sleeves because you're not going to get anywhere in this sport unless you're happy with that misery. Look, I, I've spent a lot of time with Sean Kelly and, and even Sean says that he was just able to suffer a lot longer. Okay, he did the physical attributes, but he could just suffer for longer. And I do um, quite a lot of running with him. And I can see that he's 63 years old. He's got 10 years in me. And I was quite fit last year and running and I would lift the tempo and lift it. And he'd still be there. He'd still be there. <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's him just blocking off. The, the You'll pain. be responsible for the death of Sean Kelly. <laughs> no, I, I'll be, I'll be responsible for him living to a hundred possibly. <laughs> But no, it's in all seriousness, when I was 
um, a pro bike rider, it was probably 25% science and 75% going out and, and riding your bike. And it seems to be it seems to be going the opposite way. More people are getting into the science than anything else. And one thing that working with teams and working with individuals, like you see in races, everybody looks at a power meter. So you go out and you look at your power meter. You're on a good day if you're producing some good power on the same roads you did last week. But how, how do you feel when you're producing less power on that road? The conditions change. It kind of plays with your mind a little bit. So a lot of the time when you go out to do your training, and I know that this is something that I talked about with Steve Cummings, who had some great success as a rider. Great guy. I had him on the podcast, actually. Lovely man. Yeah. Is he used to not look at his power or anything. When he was a training, he used to look at his heart rate. And that's something that I grew up with. Before power meters, it was all about heart rate. So he'd look at his heart rate more than anything. And then afterwards, he would look at his power once he was back home, but not look at his power in training. And that's something that is probably more me than anything because it's very difficult when you're out training to replicate the same conditions. So when you're riding, you're doing your training, you've gone up this climb and anything like that, the conditions all change. You feel different. But one thing about it is if you're making the, the effort, your heart rate is very similar. So when you're making these efforts, you're looking at your heart rate, and then you can look at the power files later on, not the, the opposite way around. And there are times where in training, I've asked the mechanics to tape up the power meters and just go out there and ride the bike, and then they can look at it afterwards. I had I asked the question as well, why are riders still doing six, seven, eight hour rides? Why are riders doing it? Because the sign says you don't need to do it. And, and it's getting and, even longer. Like I was looking at some of Bernal's rides in particular during lockdown and they were crazy lent. So, so why did they do it? One, I think it, it makes them feel better. And, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of kind of fat burning going on and a lot of, you know, long rides to, you know, to stay lean and things like that. And, you know, if you're out in a bike that you're not tempted to, you know, do maybe three or four hours rather than six, seven, eight hours. And once you come off the bike, you're tempted to eat more and things like that. So there's a, there's a lot of psychological things come into the training and it's not just about, about the numbers. People ask me about MT and Quebec. I came in and rebuilt that team and I, I took a bunch of, I think, underachievers. And I'll, I'll say that they're under, they had underachieved over the, the, the previous years. So they hadn't changed anything physically. I hadn't got these coaching gurus to to get them to, to train harder. They were just training. The difference is here. That's the difference. And I, I keep on banging on about it is you can be the fittest rider, the most trained rider, um, no tactics more than anybody else. But with me, my weakness was tiredness. If I was tired, I wouldn't perform at the same level. But how do you get riders to switch on to that, as you say, the mindset part? Is that sports psychologists or is it less subtle? Is it more subtle than that? I think working with, um, I don't think you need a, a sports psychologist. They can help a little bit. Um, um, Steve Peters helped the British Olympic team in, in that way, going through scenarios. I've worked with a sports psychologist before, but that kind of pushed it push me the other way a little bit, thinking too much about it. I think if you've got an individual um, like possibly a kind of father figure or, or a big brother that you can talk to, someone that that you can believe in and trust, and you've got that these kind of individuals that, that are not – you can work in constructive criticism with them, Maybe you did that in the race. Maybe you did that. Maybe you could do this. And look, I got I got recently asked a couple of questions about MTN Quebec. How did the African level uh, uh, riders rise up to you know Daniel Tekla Hamanot um, having a polka dot jersey in the Tour de France? Yeah, that was unbelievable. My philosophy was when you've got a bunch of um, African riders. I'm Scottish. This is why I've got Scottish top on, you know, supporting uh, my, my national team later on. But 
Um, as a Scottish rider, you had Robert Miller, you had uh, Billy Bilslin before that. There's always a kind of 10 years of a, a, a difference, different kind of decade. When I said I wanted to become a, a professional cyclist, people laughed at me and pe people put me down. When I went to France, you only last two weeks. This is all I got. It's, it's maybe something Scottish. Or I don't know if you've got this in Ireland, but as soon as you showed ambition, people want to put you down. Yeah, it's a very Irish thing as well. Yeah. So they want to put you down. They don't want you to see, see you succeed. Um, but I was determined. And when I first went down to England to race, you get the cycling magazine, you look at it, you see these individuals, the write-ups, the pictures, and you go down there and you see them in the flesh for the first time, you think, oh, they're better than me. Then you go out there and win the race and you think, I'm just as good as them. Yeah. So my philosophy was, if you bring in the Steve Cummings, the Boston Haggins, the Serge Pals and, and these riders, and they're all eating, living um, on the bus, doing everything together, training together, racing together. There's a spark in the mind of these underdogs that think, I've got two legs, two arms. I'm, I'm okay. Some of them might be, you know, black, but I'm the same as the ride that I'm sleeping in the same room with. And that gives them confidence because they're doing exactly everything. They're, they're putting the same fuel in the tank they're training the same. They're doing everything the same. Why can't I not be successful like they are? Well, we have that can't see me, can't be me. I'm not sure if that's uh, prevalent in the UK, but it's the idea that we've Katie Taylor as a female role model in sport and Katie Taylor is the best in the world, maybe the greatest female boxer ever. So yeah. any female boxer can be that. And Sean Kelly done that. Like It wasn't branded as can't see me, can't be me. But Sean Kelly blew the lid off expectations for riders. And we've seen Roach, Chris Yeo, Jensen, Dan Martin, and obviously Sam Bennett coming through yeah. and benefiting from the ground that Kelly paved for us. Well, look at Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett, way back in uh, 2014, um, I phoned Sean and I said, what about Sam for MTN? What about Sam? He needs another year, he said. And he was right. Sean was right. He needs another year to develop. And you, you, you find out this year that Sean Kelly won his first tour stage at 22. Sam won his first stage this year at 29, right? But it took him a little bit longer, um, but still the same, winning the green jersey, winning two stages, winning the Champs-Élysées. I don't think Sam could believe it, but people believed in him. And I think Ireland believed in it. And we always need these role models. And I bet you there's a lot of cyclists back in Ireland that have raced or ridden or trained with Sam Bennett thinking to themselves, well, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. Because it's it's setting the bar. It's it's not, you know, okay, Sam's got a gift, right? And not everybody has these gifts. I didn't have the same gifts as a Stephen Roach or a Sean Kelly and, and these sort of riders. But... I used what I had. I was in an era in the 90s, which was you know, high use of EPO as a clean cyclist. It's, it's very difficult to compete at that level, but I had a, a reasonably good, good enough career. But it's all about confidence in my mind. A, a lot of, okay, you have to, you train. And I think when you look at technology, Dave Brailsford came in with marginal gains all these small things, you put them together, but everybody's caught up now. Do, 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 do. Roadman, we're back for another Roadman intermission. This is the part in the podcast where I ask you to press pause and head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. Patreon's how I fund the podcast. Patreon is what lets me do these recordings every single day and what lets me sit down, reach out to 30 of the biggest names in the sport and get them together for this Roadman Summit. Your support over there is much appreciated and needed. Okay, let's get back to that very familiar voice. Brian Smith. Everybody, the bikes that all the teams are using, there's not much and they keep on swapping around. They're all very much the same. The wheels, the tyres, everything, the clothing now. And to jump in there on the marginal gains, I actually think what we're seeing with amateurs is they're just focusing on the marginal gains now and they're missing the entire rest of the cake. If you want to think of the marginal gains as the cherry on top, they're like hard work is the bit you, they don't talk about. It, they talk about the wheels, the tires, the skin suits, and they're missing that whole aspect of it. And you know, you can't, you can't skip it. 
no, you can't you can't skip the hard work. It's you have to put the the hard hours in. And I can remember um, I rode the world in '92, and I was riding in Britain. And for a whole kind of five six weeks, I had um, three or four criteriums. That's all I had. No other races. It was in Benidorm, over 260 kilometres. Um, I went there having done the training on my own. I used to do, you know, eight nine hours training and ride races and, and ride home afterwards. But I didn't have th those races. All I had was criteriums, which is in the UK lasted one hour. So I was having what I did was I was doing five or six hours and then going straight to the chain gang. And everybody knows that a chain gang it's about thirty or forty miles riding through and off. So I would do a hilly ride, meet them, salt all over me. They'd, they'd be shaking their head at me. And then I would ride on the front through and off, not miss a turn the whole night. And that's how I was training. I was just training harder than, than anybody else and trying to replicate what happens in races. And I finished the Worlds in 92. Uh, finished 45th, finished in the same group as a certain Sean Kelly and beat him. And <laughs> that's one of my claims to fame that, yeah, you have to put the hard yards in. But I will say that sports science can show a lot. And now we're seeing even um, food science. Before, you used to have all the riders, this is what you would eat, right? But everybody's um, using different calories. So now, like a Team Sunweb and, and Nico Roach told me this, that over the last kind of couple of years, it's all weighed out and it's all individual. So it's not a case of this suits you, it will suit him and everybody's equal and everybody has the same amount. It's all individually chopped up and it's the same with training. You can go and do 12-minute intervals on the flat, but that might not suit every rider. Some might nine, some might do 15. It's 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 an individual thing and you cannot just go out there and this, this training will suit all. But I tell you what, the one thing that I've learned in cycling is everybody likes to ride the bike. And if you can mix up the, the hard stuff, the interval training, you know, the, the, the hard stuff with riding your bike, then it kind of breaks up the rides and helps you training. Because some people, they'll go on swift um, or the, the, just a trainer and do these intervals. That's probably one of the hardest things to do, purely just go on and do this training. What I learned was you maybe do 45 minutes riding, and then you do your intervals, and then you do another 45 minutes just riding or having a ride, and then you do your, your, some more intervals afterwards. So you're coming back after doing three, sometimes three and a half hours or four hours, and you've done some, some high intensity, and you're riding your bike because that helps you mentally. Looking at a turbo trainer and knowing that you're going to go in there, like Chris Hoy used to do intervals on his, um, on his walk bike, and have a mattress next to him and a bucket. <laughs> he used to go that deep, fall off after his interval session, be sick in the bucket. So to do that. That's actually a good segue to this one because you were in 94 in Motorola. And when I think about the evolution of cycling around that period, parking the ethics of the EPO and the stuff that started going on around that era, but it was definitely a turning point around sports science as well. And yeah. It marked the kind of, in my mind anyway, maybe I'm open to be corrected by it, it marked in my mind the new era of cycling where we start really dialing in with the teachings of Ferrari. And what's it like looking back now on that sort of evolution of how riders train? Well, it not only changed the, the way we were training because we were sponsored by Polar and, you know, it was all about um, training, heart rates and things like that. We never had power meters then, but... We also had the technology in your ear. We had Motorola um, sets that, you know, the headsets now that, yeah. you know, in every pro. So we were getting information in our ears. We were looking at the training. But Motorola, that team was amazing for me because you had the, the kind of new riders coming forward. And I'm, I'm talking about Lance Armstrong, George Hincapie and these these guys, they were the kind of younger kind of new riders coming through. So they had their, their own training, but you also had Phil Anderson, even Jan Schuer, an East German from Leipzig with his training methods. So I would train with the likes of Sean Yates, uh, Phil Anderson, Jan Schuer, Steve Bauer. 
these type of guys and learn from them from can I, I was I think as a, a, a younger rider, I was a sponge taking information. But what I was good at is adapting what helped me. One thing that I I disliked is doing intervals in the flat, but I can do intervals in a climb. Yeah. Because and it was the same with time trials. Time trialing in the flat is a whole different thing. And time trialing in the climbs because it's it's easier to do it on a, on a climb because it's easier to get your heart rate. It's easier to get up to that that kind of level. When you ride a time trial or ride it along a flat, I was always having to think to myself, you can ride faster, you can ride faster. Um, because in the flat, I found um, in intervals difficult. And what I learned pre-season doing intervals, doing it in, uh, with another individual, and I did it uh, with um, Sean Yates, and we'd do a minute, minute on, swing over, and sit on uh, the wheel of the other individual who was going flat out for a minute. That that drags you out. So you've that big kick to get back into the wheel then as well. Get into the wheel and hold that wheel where he's gone because he's on your wheel for a minute. You swing over. So you've given absolute everything for a minute. You swing over, go on that wheel and suffer like a dog. It's the same with the difference between time, time trialling and your own and that kind of focus and pushing yourself without power meters to see where you are. So and riding a team time trial because a team time trial is easier to ride because you've got other individuals pulling you out. And I think doing something difficult like interval training um, is mentally a little bit easier to do with someone else because they always push you on. And I think Um, it's more specific as well because guys wonder, they do their flat out steady state 15, 20 minute intervals all off season. And then they come into the season and they wonder why they can't ride through on the break because they haven't got that, like you were talking about, that pop to get back into the wheel because there's just been steady state at whatever 300 watts they've been doing all winter. It's the same. You look at your power meter on, in a race, you know, 200 meters before the top of the hill and you're at your max. What do you do? Do you ease back, lose the wheel, and you have to chase hard down the other side? Or you just go into the red a little bit, hang on, and then everybody can ease these going down. It's, it's, it's the choices and... That's where sports science, you, you try not to go into the red too much. You're trying to do everything. But sometimes you have to go in the red at parts. And, and this is where the, the tactical side of things come in. If you pop into the red a little bit and then you get and you find yourself in front and you look back and they're riding negatively behind you, it's the fact that you've gone into that red where the others have chosen not to go into the reds. So tactically, when you've got these numbers, I don't think as a rider you should be thinking, when I get to that number of power, that's me. I'm not going any harder. But that person that goes into the red, goes over the top of that climb onto the descent, tries to recover on that descent, the other rider's starting to ride negatively behind, then you've won that race because you have taken that, that, um, that choice. And I think everybody in cycling has got the choice whether they go into the red or not. And it's not all about, you know, riding that threshold. Changing gear for a second. I know we're in an era now, which I suppose is saturated media coverage, I'd almost say, of cycling from vloggers on YouTube to cycling websites to people who have huge followings on Twitter or Instagram. And then it's, you know, your TV channels as well. And for somebody getting into the sport, that doesn't have, they're not immersed in this cycling history and cycling tradition. There's a lot of voices there. Who's the trusted voices that you go to and still admire? Like you work with Bradley Wiggins and Sean Kelly, I would assume they're two of the the better voices to listen to in the sport. It's a, it's a hard question. Um, you know, you can get to the top of the sport, but, and I think a lot of riders that have got, at the top of the sport, don't really remember or know what it feels like to be kind of in the masses, kind of hanging on the back a little bit. And it's something I, I rib Sean about the whole time. I said, you only know what it's, what um, probably five or six riders in this race know, you know, what it feels like because you were there. You were one of these kind of five or six riders. You don't know what it's like to kind of hang on the back and, you know, be suffering like a, a dog all day. Um, so I think... For me, I think it's a, a collective. Like I said, I'm a sponge. 
Um, I'll take advice from everybody. I'll, not, I'll never stop learning. I'll, I'll learn a little bit from Brian Holm when I talk to him about, you know, tactics in a race. I absorb that and I can understand that. Um, there's certain things that I hear in, when someone else is commentating. There'll be things that uh, Bradley Wiggins will, will, will pick up. Um, so for, for me, it's not about that's the, the guru of cycling. That's the person that I think is is the, the, the person I would go to to learn everything. I think for me, I'm educated by a lot of different people and there's an, a lot of influencers I take nuggets from because I don't think in cycling that everybody knows everything. And, you know, people often say to me, how do you know that tactic is going to happen in the race? How do you know? Well, I've got 15 years experience and I can know. And I, and, and I brought that experience to the teams in the Tour de France in 2015. In the Mur de Pretan stage, we missed a, a group of 20 and Edvard Bosenhagen um, in the radio, do we chase? Do we chase? And I went, no, it's not for us to chase. Because I, I knew that I looked at the composition of the, the group. I looked at who'd already missed it out, who benefited more to chase. And all of a sudden, Garmin came up and chased it down. It saved us from doing anything. Because it's always a poker game. Because these things, because I know that Rigoberto Oran on the Mur de Bretagne, he's been there, he almost won the, st won the stage before. And they're a, a, a bigger team than MTN Quebec. They'd missed the breakaway, so it's it's down to them to do it. But as a viewer getting into these tactics, like I've been you know, around the sport or involved in the sport for guts of 15 years or so, when I'm watching any race on the TV, you know, I would say I'm understanding 95%. Maybe I'm missing some of the subtle tactics, but I'm... By and large, I pretty much know what's going on. Um, but then I chat to, you know, buddies that are just getting into the sport or clients who are just getting started. You know, maybe I'm talking to real entry-level guys. Maybe somebody's played rugby for years. Now they're looking for a new challenge and they come across the cycling. They're used to watching football, rugby. These games are very easily understood tactics-wise. You get into cycling and we just have this, if you take a tour to France, you know, football, who scores the most goals win. Tour de France, try and explain that to a person who's not into cycling. Okay, so we have this three-week race and then we've this one classification called the general. But then we've a race to the top of the hill each day and that's mountains points. And then we've these intermediate sprint points that gather up for a green jersey. But all some guys don't even care about any of that. Some of them only care about winning the stage. And then this one Spanish team just cares about the team classification. They don't care about anything else. How do we communicate or how do we onboard those new users into the sport? I think it's very difficult to do that because even with my experience in bike racing, I, my motivation is I go into any race and I don't know what's going to happen. I, I kind of suspect the breakaway is going to go away here. There's going to be about maybe 10 or 12 or, or more or less. And this is what's going to happen and it could end up in a sprint. But how many times... In the, the restart to this year's season, have we seen the unpredictable? And we keep on saying this, we don't know what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, you get, um, you know, the breakaway going away. I think the breakaway might go to the end. And then Bora come up to the front and, and drag it all back. Okay, they might not win in the end. So you never know what's happening in every particular team, what the tactics are going to be. Unless you're got, sitting in every team meeting, and understanding it all. And, and that's for you as the experienced pundit, trying to call it. Can you imagine for the rugby player coming in, trying to make sense of what's going on? Because my concern with it is we lose a lot of those guys because they come in and they turn on a Tour de France stage and they can't make any sense of it. And they go, but how can you watch someone just cycling along for five hours? I can understand that seeing um, Sam Bennett win his first stage, why isn't he in yellow? You know, he exactly. Won. He's, the, he, he's the winner. But... I don't think we help each other. Um, and I know that the UCI, you know, UCI races now, the World Tour, there's only four jerseys. I can remember when there was six jerseys and some races, you know, more than six jerseys. We were saying this in, in, in the Giro d'Italia. There's about seven or eight competitions in the Giro d'Italia. Um, but we're down to four jerseys. I know that a lot of people, I like the pink jersey. I, I like the, the red jersey and I like the yellow jersey. 
But I think there seem that there needs to be some sort of consistency to make it easier. Yeah, I agree. Um, if we've got consistency, people will go. And I think it would be a crying shame to have a yellow jersey as a, a, a leader of each tour. But for a for a layman coming in and going, the welter, oh, that rider's in yellow, he must be leading. Or oh, that rider in the Giro, he must be leading. I like the fact that there's different leaders' jerseys. But I think every other jersey, I think if we can get some sort of consistency, it will help identify these riders. I also think that maybe some sort of sign towards, um, you know, I know they give a red number for more aggressive, but I think they should be identified to the rider that won the stage the previous day. But I think it's so complex when you put in a Grand Tour, 22 teams together, there's four competition jerseys, there's a race for the stage, there's a race for, the, for you know, different points. There's, you know, the GC contenders, it's a big education it's a yeah. big education, and I think what we have to do, and maybe, you know, and I know some some people do um, videos and things like that, talking about echelons, and it's something that I've learned. I've I started last year to write a book, or it started this year to, to write a book, and I'm I'm getting through it now. I've start, um, I didn't do too much in lockdown, but I'm starting to get through it. But I've got a proofreader that knows nothing about cycling. That's brilliant. So, so when I give them that, because I want to I want to appeal to, to everybody and say it in, in easy enough terms that everybody will understand. Because it nearly so, needs a Tour de France for dummies to, yeah, as an need, introductory text to explain what's going on. We need an education for sure. It's not all about echelons and things like that. We need to, uh, they, are, they have to be educational videos that says the GC contenders, these are GC days. And these are the riders that cumulatively over 21 stages has the fastest time. While there's other riders just going for stages can lose half an hour one day and win the race the, the next day. Because so, it just struck me, I recorded a podcast on the Vuelta and I was reflecting back on the last mountain stage of the Vuelta. I'm not sure if you remember. And Carapaz attacked, Roglic was dropped. He was on the back foot. And we seen in the last couple of kilometers, two movie star riders riding i think it was Soler to come back from the early break and mass yeah. Yeah. and i was explaining there's a number of things going on here one dan martin's dropped so mass has a chance of potentially jumping them on gc because i was getting questions like why are they working for roglic i was like well they're working to bring mass separate that gap from dan martin and it was just the amount of dms i got after and i touched on another couple of points or so i wasn't sure valid or not Carapaz's left movie star last year and I'm led to believe it wasn't a brilliant split. I'm like, I'm sure there's no love lost there. Solera might have a bit of extra fire in his belly to ride a little bit harder. And you're potentially banking a favor with Roglic, one of the stars in the sport. It's like when you add all those three together, it's a powerful motivator for movie star to ride and help Roglic. But the amount of DMs on Instagram I got the people just they couldn't even understand the first reason, never mind the second two I was speculating on. I was like, whoa, but how are they watching the race? Like, where are they getting their enjoyment from if they don't know that that's going on? Do you know what I think? I think um, we need to look at the UCI points as well. Um, we have the right for the position because there's a certain amount of points and all the teams need points to stay um, in, the, in the World Tour. We have to look at that. In days gone by, it was all about finishing on the podium. That's all that mattered, finishing on the podium. Whether you drop down to ninth from sixth didn't really matter. But now with the, the point system in, in cycling, the higher up the ladder you get, the more points you get. And, and it's all about points. And okay, there's, there's prize monies as well, but we could we could definitely look at that where you know there's not a big difference between sixth and tenth. But you hear it all the time, you, you, even into the last stage, we saw um, the uh, the rider from Astana trying to go on the podium, trying to go for the, the bonus sprint because he's sitting in eleventh, and Vlasov wanted to get um, the some second bonus to to pop over Valverde and Movistar were having none of it. So it's it's been happening for the last decades or even more that riders get paid a little bit more. There's, there's a bit more kudos about finishing in the top ten. And I think we have to get back and strip it all back to 
it's all about the podium and get everybody racing. Because like you, whether it was for, and you're right, Carapaz, I think in Movistar were wanting Carapaz to stay. Um, Movistar are renowned for, for, for doing these type of things as well. Um, but then again, if it's just a, a race for the podium, then Carapaz would have got a, a lot closer. But yeah, I think there was no love lost between uh, Movistar and Carapaz that day. Uh, it was in their best interest to do it, but I think it gave them that added push to make sure that Carapaz, after saying adios to, to Movistar under not great circumstances, you know, that's kind of payback for uh, letting us down. Yeah, I'm sure they had a good giggle at dinner that night about that. Uh, last question, and I'll let you go. Uh, Brian, if you're looking back on your cycling career, I'm talking Pondis, director sportif, into a rider, and you get to whisper back in young Brian's ear as he's starting this whole journey again, what advice would you give to yourself back then? Um, I think the, the old saying is, if only I had known that, um, I would have had a better career. I I grew up in cycling. I enjoyed cycling too much. I There's a lot of times I used to think about cycling too much and not just throw caution to the wind. You know, there's two... In my mind, there's two different riders, a rider that thinks too much and a rider that just brute strength and ignorance. And I I, I look back at my career and have a few wishes. I wish I had a, just attacked and, and, and forgot about trying to work things out and just attacked. And if I lost, I lost if I won, I won. And it's as simple as that. And it, that's how I won my first British title, but I was told to do it. I think throughout my career... If I'd have just used a bit of brute strength and ignorance and put myself in the game, I'd have probably won more. And that's probably a, a wee bit of advice. And it's probably come out on this in this uh, meeting with you that you can look a bit, you can look at the numbers, you can look at the science, you can look at everything. Unless you're prepared to just go out there and do it and suffer like a dog, then you're not going to have that success. And I think that's something that I learned from from um, from cycling that any team and individuals I work with now, I just say, I don't care if you lose, just go out there and win. And one of the circumstances came in, in Milan San Remo, where um, Edvard Bosenhagen was, was there in the front group. And it was important for the team, for him to finish in the first 10, because that's where you get the, the UCI points. Yeah. But I'm a firm believer of do not play safe go out there and try and win. And he did, and he attacked, and he was off the front, and he got brought back and had no points. Okay, we had to bear the consequences of, you know, the, the team owner going, we get no points from that race. Why did they go and attack? But the riders like racing. You don't, you know, when you grow up as a kid, you don't, you go, well, Daddy, I want to go and ride round the park. No, you go, I want to race round the park. Come on and race. I want to race you. And it, all these young riders, they just want to race and, it, and, and it's brilliant. So the further up the ladder you get, you take that racing away from them. You do this and you do that. It's the same now at the high level. All these riders want to do is race. And I think we've seen a little bit of that with, with the likes of Carapaz, Roglic, Dan Martin, Pogacar. these type of riders. Yeah, Pogacar. They're racers. The thing about Pogacar was in the last week of the the tour, he had to change and he had to change because you look back at the Pyrenees when he was racing, he was in, a, in, a, in the stage, the Pyrrhus he was racing and he loves racing, he loves attacking. We love seeing that as a, as a pundit, as a commentator, we love seeing all that. But in the last few days before the time trial, he just had to follow. He was just following, 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 saving that for the big efforts. Sometimes you have to do that, but we'd like to see racers and I think I made that that comment about the welter right from the start. We're in for a race because we've got Carapaz, Roglic, Dan Martin. We've got racers. And that's why I think the welter was so great this year. That because people were out trying to race each other. And that's what we want. The people are willing to race with each other. That's entertainment. And that brings people to our sport. Not people that want to go put the team on the front because there's a rider moving into fifth place and we want to keep that fifth place. So we have to look at our sport as what's more entertaining. The points, 
staying in the World Tour. I think the World Tour is it's a slippery slope because you hear that you know the the African team NTT might be riding at eight eight million euros. Eight million euros. That's like a second division team now. It's they're not going to have the the budget to be able to to do a whole race program and and have the same amount of riders. But they want that World Tour license because it guarantees them into every race. We have to look at all this and think that's not right. What we want is the best teams at the best races with the best riders. We've got too many. It's too diluted, and I think we've we've seen a glimpse of that over the last three months in our sport. We've seen a lot of the best riders at the big, the best races, yeah, and a lot of other riders. And I think that's been more entertaining. I think we have to learn from the the last three months and try and replicate that because the only time that the best riders are at the top race seems to be at the Tour de France. Because it's been a phenomenally good season, so it's looking back and replicating that, like you said. Brian Smith, I could end up yapping to you all night here about cycling. Thanks very much for your time, and thanks for joining us on the summit. No worries. Thanks again. So that was one of the interviews from this amazing performance summit that I keep talking about, the Roadman Virtual Performance Summit, first of its kind. Brian Smith was kind enough to share his insights and it was great to be able to pull this out and host it on the podcast for you. So if you want to get access to 30 or 29 other interviews like this, all you got to do, head on over to roadmansummit.com. And some of them are super tactical that won't play well on audio because they're slideshow presentations about aerodynamics nutrition fasted carb rides sports psychology etc etc roadmen thank you for listening and i'm going to chat to you again tomorrow roadmen before you go i've got an important announcement to make because over two days and the 8th and 9th of december i'm going to speak with 30 of the world's leading fitness experts and i want you to join me free of charge from the comfort of your own home this is the first ever Roadman Virtual Performance Summit where I'm aiming to bring together the best minds in fitness and they're going to share with me their secrets for biohacking your physiology, melting away body fat and smashing your cycling goals. Would you like to learn their secrets? It's easy. All you have to do is register for your free ticket over at www.roadmansummit.com forward slash free. That's www.roadmansummit.com dot com forward slash free the link is in the bio